Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. So thank you very much, uh, Elizabeth, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I'm delighted to be with you, Fergal, here in Honolulu, over to you in London. Yes. Well, you're an evolution biologist and a futurist, and you've been doing this for some time. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do? Yes, I, I, from childhood, wanted to know who this strange humanity is and <laughs> where we came from, where we're headed. So I wanted to study science, thinking that was the way to find out. But my parents drove me to art school on the grounds that back then in the 1950s, uh, you know, girls were not doing science. And uh, I did eventually become a scientist, and I did my best work after my postdoc and a job or two in a research institution uh, when I moved to Greece and could think freely on Greek islands about how the thing, this earth of ours works and what we strange species calling ourselves homo sapiens as if we were wise (laughs) are all about. What is an evolution biologist? Well, an evolution biologist looks at the trajectory of what I would consider the living Earth. Uh, Western science doesn't quite get that yet, although your Brit, uh, Jim Lovelock and uh, Lynn Margulis in the United States, uh, he an atmospheric scientist, she a microbiologist, uh, worked out this Gaia hypothesis, this Gaia theory of the living Earth. Now... Um, maybe it's a good place to start because I know you, you, you uh, um, uh, James Lovelock, wrote an introduction to your one of your your books, and you know you, you you're working in a very similar area. Um, what is it about Gaia that you think is uh, helpful in terms of understanding the environmental crises that we're facing, or more importantly, how we deal with them? Yes, I think it's very, very important not to see uh, our planet as a, uh, a, a chunk of geology that somehow magically produced life on its surface, but to rather see it the way most of humanity has seen it, as the Mother Earth. Uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to promote the idea of a big mama so much as of a living entity Uh, probably the the best description of it I ever saw was kind of like a giant cell. Um, And I I love that because cells are the basic unit of life of Earth, and uh, they keep being important as we go along. We are made of cells. Our cells are made of smaller cells. It's a fractal kind of situation, So it makes sense that the whole planet should be a kind of living cell with the life on the the, the, the sort of tangible life on the outside, the way it is on on a redwood tree, which is 99% uh, dead matter with a living bark on it and leaves and or needles, as the case may be, 
Um, so there are lots of parallels with living organisms that work very well for the earth. And when you get that, you see how the earth has to keep taking care of itself as best it can, the way every living thing does. It tries to stay alive. So sometimes she gets fevers and has a hot age, and sometimes she gets chills and she has a cold age. Um, it's, it is a living entity, and when we get that we are part of a living entity, like another set of, of bacteria crawling around on her surface or whatever uh, metaphor you want to use for us, then I think we develop a very different relationship with it than if we see it more in the Western science way, where ecology is really about seeing Earth as a set of resources for human consumption. And of course, we've got brilliantly mad with that idea and are now in bad trouble because we've we've wrecked it to the extent that it has to save itself by bringing on another hot age. And well, yeah, well, humans that, yeah. survived 10, 10 or 12 ice ages. We've never faced a hot age before. I, you covered a lot of ground there. Um, to what extent, how would... Um, uh, so, so this idea, this this um, idea of Gaia, and this idea of this kind of like self-regulating system, this living uh, kind of system, this living uh, being, how does that? Uh, how 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 would that have changed things? I mean, how, to what extent have we embraced that idea in the past or not embraced it? What is the opposite of that? And to what extent do you think that that is at the root of some of the problems we face today? Well, many indigenous cultures, of course, saw the earth as alive, if not all of them. I I don't think that the idea of non-life ever came into the world until Western science uh, produced that idea that non-life can come to life. Uh, if you, once you once you adopt the hypothesis of a living universe, you don't have to explain where life came from because life is simply the self-organizing process of a living universe. So you get rid of one very big problem of how to get life out of non-life. I happen to think that if if mud were really dumb, lifeless mud, it would never bootstrap itself into life. <laughs> so it makes more sense to me as an evolution biology to adopt that idea of the living universe, which of course contains living systems of all kinds, including the planets that revolve around some stars. Yes, yes. Now, now, now as I said, indigenous cultures got that that everything is alive and but western science killed that whole notion and what happened as a result of that why was that a problem just what i said because we applied the ideas of of the earth as resources for humans which started with certain interpretations of the bible saying man has dominion and nowadays the more progressive christians say uh and jews because they both have the Old Testament, uh, they they take that dominion to be the responsibility of care rather than the lording over and exploiting of. So um, I look to indigenous cultures who built their human societies on the basis of a living earth. And my favorite, of course, is the Haudenosaunee, which the Europeans called uh, the Iroquois, 
from whom the United States got the basis of its constitution. What, what do you mean? <laughs> That's a very interesting story. Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers, uh, spent a lot of time with the Haudenosaunee Indians learning their great law of peace. And their great law of peace gave us our balance of powers, the divisions in the government, uh, and the whole concept of how a democracy is a rule of the people, by the people, for the people. Unfortunately, the founding fathers left out of our constitution, based on that Iroquois great law of peace, uh, the role of women, children, and nature. And they're the ones who got famous in retrospect for thinking seven generations ahead when our psychologists are tr still trying to say that we're a short-sighted species who can't do that. They did. Every deliberation they made had to be thought in terms of how it will affect seven generations down the road, just what the Greta Thunberg youth are now demanding, that they have a right to a future. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Now, you, you've been uh, working in this, the, this as a, an evolution biologist for some time, some decades. Um, what's on your mind at the moment? Um, and, and what keeps you awake at night? We've, we've, you know, you, you, you have seen the, uh, I guess, the trajectory uh, and the, the, the peaks and troughs in terms of awareness when it comes to environmental issues and what we can do and this tremendous momentum in certain areas today, as you mentioned, Greta Thunberg and, you know, there's Extinction Rebellion, there's, there's, there's some, some movement there, shall we say. Um, you know, at the same time, we're running out of time for some of these uh, environmental crises. Um, wh wh where do you think we are today? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, more than half a century ago, I was doing a postdoc at the American Museum of Natural History where we were already talking about climate change. And then in the 80s, sitting around with Jim Lovelock, who came to visit me in, uh, on my Greek island, where at that time I was working out evolution biology from my own perspective, uh, trying to get beyond Darwinism. Um, and, uh, we, and, and he was saying, pray, Elizabeth, that we go into another ice age, because we're due for one now. Uh, because it looks like we may be tipping into a hot age instead, and that's going to be much more difficult for us. Uh, in both cases, I'm very aware that the temperatures only change by something like 7 or 8 degrees, uh, I think centigrade, off what we consider normal. We've been living in, in a very benign age for humans now since the last ice age, um, but we got through the last ice age and a dozen before that. And what's on my mind a lot now is, look, people, this is bloody serious. And it's not being taken nearly seriously enough. Just in the past year, I would say there's been a huge leap in awareness. Uh, but it's already, you know, we're already at the tipping point. Anyone who understands anything about the hockey stick exponential curve knows that uh, if, a, if a pond is being covered by pond lilies that reproduce one a day, each leaf giving rise to two, that two days before the end, the pond's only half full 
And one day before the end, it's only three quarters full. You can do this with a jar of flies or anything else. It's the most important piece of math you should ever learn is how fast uh, things go in an exponential curve. Once you round that bend where suddenly the doublings show up seriously. And that's, we are there. We're facing very serious sea level risk. 13 of our 20 largest cities are at sea level which is where they build their airports and piers, meaning everything coming in and out of that city by air, land, or sea is in trouble, right? Uh, Only by land might you still have some hope, but that's the very slow way compared to airplanes and and nowadays uh, uh, ships. Yes. Yes. Now, Now, Gaia, I guess underlying this is is an idea that – there's a kind of single, I guess, what you call self-regulating system. Yes. And and I guess homeostasis is, is a part of that. And um, It's homeostasis, really. The set point can change. The climate average is a kind of set point, like on a thermostat, which is self-regulating, the heat in your room, right? Yeah, no, and I'm interested in, in trying to understand this because yeah. I guess – um, some interpretations of the Gaia uh, ideas talk about or, or, or have a sense that things will come back into balance, that, you know, there's a homeostasis, yeah. that things will come back to the, 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 the median or the middle again and, you know, we'd have some extremes. Is that right? Because that, that, that would suggest that, that you know, there's a reasonably optimistic yes. scenario. Yes, in a sense it is right. Over the four billion years of Earth's life, it has maintained a relatively stable temperature. Within those four uh, billion years, you shift from that kind of homeostasis to a homeoresis where the Earth has to reset its climate occasionally in order to overall maintain that homeostasis. You're right. So what does that tell us about this question, I know um, that we've uh, this question of uh, these different Earth systems and this, um, you know, yeah. and, and, and tipping points, which are, uh, I guess, like like a lot of things in systems uh, theory, quite difficult to pin down. We know that they exist. We know that how how they're going to, uh, you know, potentially the kind of magnitude of change, but we're not quite sure when they're going to happen and and so forth. How does that impact? Well, we have been wrecking the Earth's ecosystems to the point where it's giving her a fever now. (laughs) She has to readjust to a hotter climate to make up for the damage we've done. Um, You know, we're killing off the oceans. That's probably the greatest danger is our killing off of the oceans because land life will not survive well if the oceans go. Uh, And, of course, the Earth has been knocked back to something like 95 to 98 percent of its life extinguished and still recovers. So she can go all the way back to bacterial life and do it all over again for another couple billion years and until the Earth's life is naturally over within the the galactic uh, spans of life. So for us humans, tipping points mean when we behave so badly that we've suddenly caused damage we can't reverse anymore. And as far as I can see, we're beyond the tipping point on climate change in the sense that we can no longer 
uh, reverse it. We can't bring it back to where we were, but we then have to adapt. And adaptability is a human trait. We can do it. I visited Morocco years ago just to see how the Moroccans adapted to life in a desert, you know, which is definitely eight degrees hotter than what most of us live at, uh, you know, comfortably. And they did it. They were able to do it with, with very low-tech solutions. So I know that we can adapt, but I doubt seriously that all of us will get through this. We'll be in lower numbers by the time this perfect storm of crises has been sailed through. Now you've seen this, uh, I guess, as I said, the you know the the rising. That you know there've been moments before where, where where there's been a growing environmental consciousness and a growing sense of what's 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 happening. Certainly today, in, in the last you know, as you say, six months, year, there's been uh, considerable momentum on a couple of fronts. Um, but the question about how to deal with the situation we're in. And you know who's responsible, and mm-hmm. um, you know they're 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 gnarly questions because of course we're all responsible. Every time we go shopping, we buy it with our plastic bags and we get into the car, and yet we're part of an industrial uh, civilization, you could say, which has mm-hmm. you know tremendous power and momentum. Absolutely, uh, and and you know we know that that uh, whole industries can get retooled almost under under overnight, you know, as Roosevelt did in the United States uh, when we were getting into World War II. Suddenly the whole economy was retooled and we were building war equipment and women were suddenly in factories and all of that kind of thing can be done. We can ban plastics, the further production of plastics, Uh, but we're going to have to get very busy recycling the plastic we do have, fishing it back out of the ocean and putting it to the uses that are most important to us. We can also go back to more uh, eco-friendly equivalents to plastics, such as celluloid was, and the Japanese are, are starting to do that. We can do what we call biomimicry these days uh, um, and, and copy nature, which makes the strongest and most durable and most beautiful materials on the planet. Uh, you know, spider silk and mother of pearl and, and all these amazing things that can be made and be biodegradable. Yes, yes. Now, what, what do you think are the parallels between, we talked earlier about cells and mm-hmm. um, this idea that, um, yeah, the, the, about cells and, 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 and human society. Are yes. there lessons for us? Because um, it's always tricky it seems to me, and, and I'm not a scientist, when one uh, enters the realm of, of, of science, talking about science, whether one's, you know, should we say, pushing the metaphor a little bit far, whether one's actually just being metaphorical rather than actually discussing, understanding forces that are really in play. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm laughing a bit because, of course, you cannot do science without having some concept of what science studies. Right. In other words, if you want to build a science that studies the universe, you have to have some notion, what is a universe? Uh, or you can't even make a theory. So you, science rests on a set of very fundamental statements dignified with the name axioms or fundamental assumptions. 
They are assumptions about what this universe is. So Western science, for instance, assumes this is a non-living universe. Uh, that's no more provable than my saying it's a living universe. How, how do you prove this is a non-living universe? It's impossible. And you're not expected to. Assumptions are considered unprovable statements. So you decree this is a non-living universe. It is made of matter and energy. Uh, you can study it objectively without interfering in it. You can study what it is as if you can get outside of it and look at it. And uh, this thing that, that we study it with, which is primarily, of course, the human mind, has somehow come into being through a long series of accidents we call evolution, which produced something we named consciousness way, you know, close to where we come and onto the scene. Now, that is, those, those are the basic notions of a universe that Western science is built on. There are other sciences in the world built on very different assumptions. There's Vedic science that's been around for thousands of years. There's Taoist science out of China. There's Islamic science, a lot of which got worked into uh, Western science. Every indigenous culture I've run into does scientific experiments and studies nature scientifically. So there are many ways to look at nature. And when you, when you say, well, Western science has proved something and you're just using uh, nice poetic metaphors, I say, excuse me, but why do you say that? And then the scientist will say, because you can't prove it. And when I ask him, how do you prove what you believe, I can pin him to the wall. Now, it's very interesting you say that because <laughs> at the same time, the, you know, these metaphors are powerful in the sense that, yeah. you know, um, having a scientific basis, should we say the machine metaphor of the, of the universe and so exactly. forth. Exactly. You can't do any science without metaphor. Right. So, <laughs> um, so this is quite an interesting question because, you know, um, we all act in the world, you know, with, without having, uh, although we pretend to be rational and, and so forth, but not necessarily having conscious uh, scientific uh, models in which we operate, but there, there, you know, the, the, there's the as you say, there's the Newtonian whatever machine model. Um, then there's the, the kind of quantum scientific model, uh, physics model, and I'm wondering because um, Gaia is clearly n not so much uh, uh, in terms of physics; it's more of a biological metaphor, I guess. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of? Uh, these metaphors, because you know, on the one hand, as you say, you know, the, 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 you can't prove them or, or not, but in a certain sense, you know, there's a self, there's a, there. But at the same time, they, they they are important because the degree to which they they spread and they become dominant and they implicitly the world and therefore behave within the world is at the same time uh, relevant, I guess. Absolutely. And, and Fergal, it's not just that there, it's, it's, it's critically important to understand that, that the, that the metaphors determine your whole belief and your whole action. Uh, and that science is, cannot, you cannot explore the unknown except in terms of the known. So we've used metaphors, uh, you know, from, uh, Starting with with uh, the for the atom, let's say a solar system, you know, and 
and the uh, the the brain uh, became a uh, a set of telephone networks, or first a plumbing system. Freud's, you know, jamming up the pipes, kind of valves and pipe system. And then we invented the telephone. The brain became uh, a telephone network. And then we invented the computer, and it became a computer. And then uh, we got parallel processing going, so now the brain's a parallel processor, a hologram. Whatever our technology, the latest one is, the brain hasn't changed, but our metaphors have. And so our whole view of how it functions has. Uh, So the way we see the world depends on our metaphors for the planet. And biological, yes. Consider that, that if... Instead of uh, Galileo having looked up at a telescope into the sky, he had turned those lenses around and built a microscope and looked at a drop of pond water, he might have decided that everything in nature was alive and maybe the whole universe was alive rather than, you know, taking up the old uh, medieval models of, of planets revolving around the earth and stuff and making it into a mechanical universe because, of course, machinery was what they were enamored of, the founding fathers of Western science, and so they saw everything as machinery. And that was a very heady idea because they were, in fact, the inventors of machines and knew exactly how to control machinery, whereas nature up until then had been seen as dark, mysterious, feminine, and you'll never be able to understand her, so best to turn her into a machine that you can not only understand but control. Well, that's very interesting because if we're coming back to Gaia, because Gaia, it's not an essential part of the the the, the metaphor, but you know that that Gaia is female. It's just, um, but Gaia, can you talk a little bit about how useful? Um, how has Gaia? You know, it's it's had some. Uh, Momentum. There's, there's, there has been. I guess it's moved from what, what they call a kind of hypothesis to a theory, or I'm not quite sure when that happens. But um, it's not something you necessarily hear people talk about a lot at the moment. Can you talk a little bit about where you see? I mean, this is quite a esoteric, I guess, Elizabeth. But where we are with our metaphors. Um, and how, how, how useful the way we see things are now in terms of really, you know, not just analyzing the roots of the problems, but that's part of it, but actually dealing with the crises we're facing. Yeah, well, uh, it's absolutely essential that we get how the self-regulating systems of the planet work, whether you actually adopt the idea of calling it Gaia or not get that it that these ecosystems do take care of themselves when people don't mess around in them. <laughs> so that's tipping points. The key so talking about tipping points is yes. is an is is a way of getting to this point. Yes. And and that's why I think the exponential curve is so important to understand. Uh because people would like to think that okay, if the sea's gonna rise it's, it'll go up a millimeter at a time, a centimeter at a time. It's way off in the distance. It's not for me to really worry about. Instead of recognizing that it's, it can also rise by the meter at once. And that's what we're not getting. When you look at the, at the ice melt in the Arctic, 
the for years now the atmosphere has been carrying more than 40% moisture above its normal carrying capacity for moisture what happens the wind belts around the poles where all this stuff is evaporating as we know we can see it in satellite images how much of it has gone from the edges we can't see from the satellite image how how much shallower the ice is yet but we see the waterfalls pouring down into sinkholes in the middle of the ice and we see the glaciers calving off the end and uh and those wind belts dropping down closer to the equator so that we're getting massive flooding all over the middle of the United States now where we have never had that much flood at the same time we've got these tornadoes whipping up because these wind belts are not where they used to be they've they've changed position and they're dropping their snow and ice in places where it hasn't been before which makes all the the midwestern christian fundamentalists say see it's obvious there's no global warming <laughs> look at all this hail coming down right? yes we need a bit more we need a bit more global warming as donald so trump would if, say if we understood the systems then we could predict much better the difference between weather and climate uh is like the difference between the the planet's uh, age and our age you know it's um we have to think in terms of these big systems and it's coming on fairly suddenly what we do get is that if we keep doing what we're doing we're going to keep getting what we're getting and if we keep clogging the oceans more and more there will be fewer and fewer fish and living things in it uh but what we what we still don't seem to want to grok is how fast it goes after that tipping point well it's interesting and, it's interesting because i guess a tipping point is a slightly uh, less technical way of talking about nonlinear change and nonlinear linear change is it's not something that's necessarily quite e- you know e- easy to to get the message across a- about and 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 but that's what we're talking about we're talking about yeah. fundamentally um you know and i guess that 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 uh, you know is to do with the question of how how good we are at scientific communication and talking about you know science how good scientists and not just scientists but how good we are sharing scientific knowledge and talking about you know and really really getting the message across about nonlinear change yeah well and in 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 addition to that we have the problem that science has all been politicized so science is supposed to be politically neutral uh of course it's always been done in the context of of all of human behavior and the reason that that we've wrecked things so so quickly now in the past couple hundred years when we after since we discovered fossil fuels is because um the the because science was taken over by the young industrialists in in England uh who had um the church and state had been the rule right church and state were the alliance and then we shifted into an alliance between industrialism and science because the church threw science out and the industrialists got the value of science so science has been politicized from the beginning in the sense that industry started ruling politics So we have now a world in which uh we are in the third phase of what I call evolutionary empire building 
And to explain that, I have to say that evolution proceeds in a maturation curve from a youthful Darwinian competitive phase to a mature uh, Kropotkinian, I say, because the Soviet Union taught cooperation in nature through Kropotkin's work, who had built on Darwin to see that there's a mature phase where things cooperate. And it happens when it gets too expensive to continue to compete. When a, a, a bacterium or a single cell or a multi-celled creature, even a human, gets it that it's more energy expensive to kill enemies than to feed them. Capitalism doesn't allow you to feed your enemies because you're in a competitive empire-building mode. The first empires were built about 6,000 years ago with empires ruling them. Then we moved into corporate empires like the British Empire, the Dutch Empire, the French. There were eight of them. The first multinational was uh, the East India Company, which had a British, a French, a Dutch, a Portuguese component, right? The first multinational was the East India Company, which led to the exploitation of the Americas. Uh, yes, so yes. No, you, you say something the, interesting there that you talk about, and I know you're talking about it at a cellular level or, or you know, a, a uh, biological me, level, that thing being too expensive to yes. compete. But yes. I suppose if you translate that into the you know, our world, it assumes possibly rational behavior. Well, I'm saying that now we're at the last empire phase is the corporate empire phase. Corporations are now more powerful than governments. Why is that the last? Because it can't go any further because we're killing it off. (laughs) Because we're going to grow up, Fergal. Those people who survive this perfect storm of crisis this time, which is planet-wide, are either going to get it that you have to fit the the economy into ecology, which gives you the wise society, the ecosophy, instead of making ecology subservient to your economy, eating up nature to drive consumerism, production and consumption. Now, that's, so, that's very, that's very interesting, either, and it brings to exactly this the point, which I, I would yes. really be interested. Can you talk a little about it? And also linked to that, and I know this is linked, is this question, and you talked about this at the beginning, about the indigenous peoples. And I'm just wondering what what in your ecosophy Mm -hmm. the indigenous elders have to teach us. And I'm mindful of the distinctions you made between different kinds of sciences, in a sense, or different sciences, that there might be different kinds, but different sciences earlier in the discussion. Yes, every indigenous culture I've come in contact with myself personally, has produced a pretty wise society. Some of them were what I would call patriarchal socialism, as in the Inca Empire. And and it's interesting that China is now repeating that model of, of patriarchal socialism uh, as it expands around the globe, doing exactly what the Inca Empire did, which was making everybody promises they couldn't refuse so that they came into the empire without being fought. You see, China's got it, that it's better to feed your enemies than to... Uh, than to kill them. And that's what it's doing. It's basically, it's buying them off. It's feeding them. Uh, It's developing them with its patriarchal 
ownership oversight kind of uh, in place. And that's as far as it can go now on the planet. And as I say, those humans who survive these crises now will be the ones who get how to take care of themselves without violating uh, the principles of nature, such as recycling. And, and uh, so I look to the wisdom of indigenous cultures because they already built these wide, wide societies like the Iroquois started out talking about. And that, be, calling it ecosophy, which I did not coin that term, but I adopted it. The word ecos is the Greek word for household. It is a holarchic term, an embedded term. It applies to a family household, a social household, the cosmic household. All of it is an ecos. It's a, it's a cosmos, our people, at all, all those levels. The ancient Greeks thought in terms of these levels uh, from cells up to the universe, right? And that's what we're learning to do now ourselves. So when we adopted the Greek words ecology and economy, ecology is ecos and logos, which is the design of the household. Economy is ecos with nomos, law, the rule of the household. We separated those and then, as I said, made the ecology, the household, uh, whole design of the household, we took over in our economy. And if we turn that around and design an economy that fits into nature without harming it so that it can continue to self-regulate and take care of itself, then we have the wise society, the ecos with Sophia, Sophos, wisdom, the wise host has household. Does now, that make sense? That's, that makes a lot of sense. And are you optimistic that, that there are that we're some momentum, that there are roots for this? You, you mentioned the Chinese, the, the you know, Belgian Road Initiative. I mean, as I understand it, there's very different uh, uh, policies and approaches to many questions, including environmental questions, with, both within China and without China, outside of China. And the, yes. the, the, the Belgian Road Initiative seems, uh, from, from people I've spoken to on the podcast, to be uh, quite an aggressive and unregulated um, attack yes. on, on the environment, on, on the, uh, you know, through, through development of infrastructure and so forth. So I just wonder when you mentioned the Chinese, what, yeah. whether, what, whether you were giving them some accolades there or not. Well, it's, it's, it's ironic because within China, they're getting pollution has to stop and they're closing down coal mines, yes. and yet they're yes. building new coal mines along the Belt Road. Well, that's right, uh, yes. yes. Quite because, a, yeah. it's the, because it's the fastest way to industrialize these countries, they believe. I don't know why they haven't gotten it yet that you could solar energize and wind energize. India's doing a lot. Uh, in that direction of clean green energy. I don't know why China isn't doing much more clean green energy down that belt road. Uh, yes, and and yes. it dismays me that it isn't. As I say, I think it's the last wave of empire. It's patriarchal socialism. Its own people, I think, have risen up enough already to, to get a lot of green energy going within China. Uh, and then they'll, and they're selling solar panels to the world. And, uh, you know, at the same time, we've now got a war between can China or the U.S. 
cover the earth in 5G fastest, which is one more suicide weapon humanity has thought up for itself. But I do think enough people are getting it, and they're getting it mostly through local self-building communities, communities like Findhorn in Scotland and Pondicherry in India and uh, Dominor in northern Italy, where, where people practice permaculture and try to get food and energy self-sufficient. Those are the pockets that will last. If they're on high enough ground and they're make, creating their own energy and food, uh, they will survive. These uh, no, that's a very interesting point that you make. And, and uh, um, I, I'd like to come back to the ecosophy and, and get a sense of a, a bit more of, of where, where you think we've you know, what are the, the, the move, where's the movement there? What are the trends? What's, what, what's, you know, make you optimistic mm -hmm. there? But you talked about um, th this, you know, so some people I've spoken to on the podcast uh, laterally, um, a couple of, a couple of uh, people have had a, a pretty negative perspective on where we are. And, and one or two have talked about really saying that this is a giant machine industrial civilization that's that's you know vast Thanks. complex and has tremendous momentum and you know you, oh, we can't stop it we can't stop it it's going where it's going and they talk about creating pockets i suppose you call it, of resilience and focusing on you know whether yes. it's community level or even city yes. level you know uh uh i guess you know, uh, communities that that are uh, holistic and resilient in the face of uh, a collapse of, the, of 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 what you might call industrial civilizations, so the supply chains we're so reliant on, and and so forth. Is is that a perspective that you take? Absolutely, and it goes way beyond those those uh, few intentional communities I mentioned. Uh, some of the larger experiments are. Um, uh, the island uh, nation of Sri Lanka, where there's a big movement there that's based on self-development in small villages. In other words, it's linking 10,000 villages together in, in, in a rural economy. Uh, in Spain, Mondragon is a set of urban cooperatives that are worker-owned and where they made the decision that no salary should be more than eight times the lowest salary. And everybody's happy with that. And the workers become owners over time of their own businesses and they produce industrial equipment and buses and, and you know, quite large uh, things and have... Uh, in part their own banking system, so they survived the 2008 crash better than most of the rest of Europe and the United States. And then we have, like you've had Hazel Henderson on a podcast, and she shows how there are now, what, $13 trillion in green investments. Uh, my friend Ronaldo Brudico, head of the World Business Academy, is working with Deepak Chopra, a spiritual leader, uh, I call him a Vedic scientist, um, and and they're on Wall Street uh, doing just capital. Um, they're they're getting even companies like Goldman Sachs uh, wanting to join them, paying to join them, rather than laughing in their faces. And do you so really believe? Do you really believe that Goldman Sachs? Get, I mean, really, do you really believe Goldman Sachs is, is, has got these values that really, 
No, they're just seeing that that there's money to be made in green investment. That's all. They're still the giant squid. <laughs> yes. But yes. Yes. No. Uh, it's, it's, and, it's, and, but as I, you're right that humans maybe can't stop this capitalist machine in its tracks. But when the New York Times has front page articles saying questioning capitalism it's on the table at least that we can question what we're doing and for you know all during the cold war we couldn't say the word community because it made us a communist uh so there is a lot of change going on in the world however the climate change is one of the biggest is the biggest change that we're undergoing it's bigger than us and it's what will stop the machine are you optimistic You've been I'm in optimistic this. that climate change will stop the machine, and I'm no. optimistic <laughs> that a, a, a fraction of humanity will get through, and that everybody has the right and obligation to believe that they and their families could be among the survivors, so get working on it. I, I find that hard to, to, to really classify as optimistic. <laughs> it's, so, I mean, how, how do you think this is going to play out? I'm optimistic that humanity will not get wiped out. That's rather different from saying that, you know, we've got a hiccup and, you know, we'll, we'll, we, we will, you know, it's manage. It's a hiccup. Our, it's a serious our... disease. <laughs> yes. Well, well. So what, what is your advice then? What is your sense? You know, you understand uh, and, and this cellular approach, which operates at different levels. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, what I what I urge people to do is to really try to grok the situation, to understand how serious it is, and then to find there are a gazillion ways that you can work on a better human future. Uh, as Rumi said, there are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the earth. And Rumi also said, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? We humans have created the system we're living in now. We are eminently capable of designing a whole, what my, <clears throat> my group that I'm working with right now is called Tomorrow Makers. You can see the website at tomorrowmakers.org. We are trying to design games to try out new human operating systems without risk and asking the deepest possible questions. Do we want land ownership by humans to continue into the future? Is that a sensible thing to do? Or can we do land leasing the way China already does? Uh, Do we want to take a money system that was designed to concentrate wealth and about which we were warned by all the major religions 2,000 years ago that has now played itself out in the greatest wealth gap ever known? Do we want to carry that into the future when our own bodies give out free money in every cell? Uh, You don't have to do debt money in order to have money in your system. There are so many ways to do it, and what every person should do is Take what you're most passionately love doing, whether it's writing poetry, nursing people, uh, going to political demonstrations, cleaning oceans, building new devices, designing houses, whatever it is, 
do what you most love doing in a way that's sustainable, that serves society, that meets people's needs without destroying nature, or that's cleaning up nature. Promote the end of plastics, you know, any way you can. Um, Kneel and kiss the earth your way so that you become an attractor to other people. The more of us that do this together, the better we have a chance of getting through. Get it that politics should not be an adversary, an adversarial contest between conservatives and progressives, because nature always conserves what works well and changes what doesn't. And Britain tried very briefly this experiment of having both sides at the head of government. It didn't work because no one was trained for it. No one understood what it means to cooperate between the people who change the things that don't work and the people who help us protect the things that do work. Get politics to be non-adversarial and you'll be a big step ahead. It's a powerful vision, Elizabeth. And, <laughs> I'm <laughs> and, passionate, as you see. And thank you so much. <laughs> for taking the time and, 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 and talking today to the sustainability agenda and, and, and sharing your vision and, and your passion. And I wish you the very best of success. And may, may blessings heap on you for spreading all this good word. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.